Tony Floreal here, and welcome to episode five of Floreal TV. My next guest is Scott Jeffrey, and he is the author of Creativity Revealed. He is a cult branding expert, and Scott and I have known each other for about five years, and finally I was able to meet this private man at his home in the Catskill Mountains. In this episode, we talk about a smorgasbord of many different things from the unconscious and the conscious, the psychology of creativity and flow. We get into Scott's own personal stories with flow and much, much more. So without further ado, enjoy this episode with the creativity wizard himself, Mr. Scott Jeffrey. Hi everybody, this is Tony Flow Real and welcome to Flow Real TV. Uh, just sitting here in the Catskill Mountains with Mr. Scott Jeffrey. He is an author, uh, known Scott for many years, and uh, we're just gonna go ahead and uh, talk stories about many topics. Been hanging out with Scott for the last couple of days, and oh my goodness, it's just unreal the type of things that we've been talking about. So Scott, welcome to Flow Real. Honored to be here, Tony. Thank you. Awesome, man. You have a beautiful uh, setting where you live and uh, it's so great to finally meet you after all these years. Yeah. Um, I'm thinking it's been like maybe five years uh, just knowing each other online. Yeah. Um, I was following you uh, through your work as a, a creativity author, mm -hmm. uh, cult branding author as well. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, it's just so, so cool to finally get to like be here in person with you yeah, in the flesh. It's nice to know that you actually exist in three dimensions. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, which is, brings up the point that this is what's going on in the, the future of the world as people start to connect. But I, I think that the essence of meeting in person is, is being lost. And uh, that's one of the reasons why I'm actually like traveling to the guests right. to be able to capture that 3D or even more than that, you know, in, 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 in actually 2D, ironically enough. Yeah you know so and it's kind of nice if you think about like how it used to be you know we only knew people in our community in our schools you know and that was the people that you connected with whereas now you get to connect in 2d with people that have similar interests and like-minded thinking and then have the ability to actually connect in person so it starts off with more loose connections and then can actually foster stronger connections over time so in a way it's a better model than we used to have it's cool to just have access to more people uh, overall i mean the whole planet basically and uh, now it's easier to find people that have similar interests and uh, you're not just like isolated hoping that you could find somebody and a lot of times people don't you know they, yeah. they feel isolated even though they're surrounded by people which is that another irony yeah that's right that's yeah right. so wow man i mean let's talk about um 
for example, your work. So let's get into like creativity. What drew you into that? And, uh, you know, what are some of the like distinctions that you really feel that people should know about? Yeah. Well, I think uh, one of the things that drew me into it was uh, actually this idea of flow is that there was there was those moments where one, you can be connecting ideas that you didn't know before. You know, you take two books that are on completely different subjects and you read them back to back and it's like, okay, how do those two relate? And you start making connections between the two and you feel those, those lights going off in your head. And okay, well, did anyone else see these before? And you know, and it kind of puts you on a path, you know, and um, there's old alchemical texts that talk about following one book that leads to another and leads to another, and they could be on totally divergent topics, but this, this creative impulse begins to build, and then where it goes, you just, you don't know. So I always linked creativity to the hero's adventure, you know, yeah. of going from this, like, known world of what you know right now to this special world that's completely foreign but has all the excitement and adventure that is going to bring you back to you know what you are at your core um, and so that was kind of the the impulse that got me interested in, in creativity in the first place but I also want to know why it worked like what is the source of inspiration like right. you know those moments that like are they just for the creative few that we call the genius the creative genius or is that something that's like everyone's birthright you know and what have you found you think it's everybody's yeah well I think like um, in academia they separate it out into like big C creativity and little c creativity yeah. you know and big C creativity is like that's the the creative works that have an impact on society but little c creativity you know we say little c so it sounds like it's of a lesser value but like when like a child like learns the Dewey Decimal System for example like that's and, and gets it you know in that moment that's that's the creative impulse that's that's the same thing that defines the big C creativity. The only difference is, is that the big C creativity is defined by having a number of years of skill development, of learning, of essentially being the student. You know? and people use, for example, Mozart as the example of, oh, he was this like, small child that immediately just picked up a piano and started to play. But what they don't know is he actually had clocked like 3,000 hours of practice, even just at an unusually early age. Oh, wow. So it's not that we just naturally... Uh, so that's like talent. sort of a myth in a way. Yeah, 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 that's right, that there's like instant talent, you know. Yeah, yeah. And maybe there's something to that. You were, yeah, you were saying like the outliers, there, there's yeah. special cases yeah. that that does happen. But with even most of those cases, it's, it's a function of not the ability, but the passion. Like, how do you give a child like that passion that they're, where they're willing to invest those long hours, you know, as opposed to just drifting off and say, okay, that was fun. You know, how many parents try to get their kids into an instrument, right? And it's yeah. just like a battle to do right, it. Right. So the mystery is, seems to be more in like tapping into that passion and those few people that find that early on, those are the ones we end up calling creative geniuses mainly because they've developed like a uh, their brain as their brain was developing their skill was developing yeah you know so it's kind of fascinating at the fact that at that early age it was just like um not a perfect storm but like the yeah. opposite where somebody had just introduced that child to an instrument yeah. and it was like instant passion lit up yeah. and they found it that early in age where a lot of us it takes a while for something like that to really like 
capture our attention and we yeah. fall in love with what we want to do. Yeah, and if ever, it's a, you know, like that's yeah. really the, the gift is to actually be able to fall in love with some kind of passion, some sort of activity, something where you can continually grow and develop in. Um, you know, and Mozart, is, this is another example with him, you know, people think that the ideas would just come to him and he would start playing. But the truth is that he studied every major artist that existed at the time. He was completely fluent on all of them, you know, which is what the creativity research is showing too, is that the more you develop sort of your understanding, your cognition, your skills, the more connections you can make. And then the more unconscious competence you can develop where you can just rift and play in, in whatever area you want. So that's another myth that's being yeah. dispelled is that these people that reach these levels are actually like researching other domains uh, within music and then outside of music and making these connections. Yeah, yeah. they're always working hard basically. Yeah. You know, like that, that idea of like it just comes to them is that's the myth, you know, yeah. the, and that's I think that's the part that um, maybe some people don't want to hear because like, if you believe that some people are talented and other people aren't, then you don't have to necessarily put the effort forth. Yeah? But if everyone knew that everyone is naturally creative in whatever area their own core competency can be in terms of their own you know, um, wiring, you can say, then it's a function of are you willing to first discover what that is and then invest in like, the effort and time to, to really cultivate it yeah. so that you can get more flow out of it and more bliss out of it and, and more creative work out of I it. I love the, the, the word invest where you actually like are, um, you know, there's like financial investing, but right. there's another form of investing, which is investing in yourself. Right. And that's kind of where we're at with like flow real is like, how can we tap into these states doing the things that we love and, and putting in the time and effort and preparation right. to become better. Right. So right. right. Yeah. And and investing in areas that are in alignment with your strengths, right? That are with um, done with an understanding of the environment that you're in. You know, that's why it's like there's like an architecture to where to invest your time and where to to put the effort and so that I think at the beginning stages takes a lot of like tinkering you know so if we each looked at ourselves as, as being in our own laboratories yes. you know and like we have to play around a lot in the beginning have to fail a lot you know and that it's through that failure that that learning process takes place it's like it's fail fail quickly and adapt fail fail quickly and adapt you know exactly. which is means getting over that idea of like failure is wrong or failure is bad or that failure means anything at all about the individual basically just f like feedback, feedback right yeah right, to right, uh, right. self-correct self correction okay. yeah failure is really the wrong word but because we have a certain meaning attached to it, but it's the meaning that we already, the word that we already have in our Yeah, it's a negative connotation yeah. in most people's minds. That's yeah, right. so that kind of even, uh, we're talking about the power of, of language that actually stops people from doing what they want because of this internal dialogue that they carry right. using a certain language that happens to be like negative, like yeah. failure. Right. Right, right. That's true. And there's um, there's a, what they call in psychology positive and negative asymmetry, where there's like three times more uh, negative words for like, for example, in, in the context of emotions, there's there's um, there's a uh, three times more negative uh, words for emotions than there are positive ones. And so there's a bias towards negativity. Mm. So that's why you have to consciously connect with. Um, you have to consciously cultivate the vocabulary 
for your development. Otherwise, the, the context of the environment, the context of your brain, the context of your language will always be working against you. In the beginning, it feels like being in an uphill stream, yeah. basically, and, and the only way to uh, sort of change your behaviors is to be aware of it in the moment and then choose differently. Right. Okay. And then not just, you know, I mean, obviously we, we flip in and out of these, these states where we're like automatic pilot and we're being controlled by our, our biology and genetics and, and even our environment. Yeah. And then internal environment, like the thoughts that are going on that we mistakenly think it's us. Yes. And, and then consciously shifting to, okay, I'm aware of all these things going on and I'm going to choose a different approach basically that's right. that's okay right. yeah that's right yeah i mean it seems uh, according to the research up to like 95 percent of our behavior is unconscious so we're, we're we're truly we're starting from our like and, and it's helpful to understand the starting position right is like it's not one of consciousness like our ego might let us lead us to believe it's one of unconsciousness and so the our job in our investment in our development and in, in cultivating creativity is in first um, coming to uh, ec ec see that, you know, in terms of the, the unconsciousness and then continue to shine that light of consciousness onto, and that happens through language, it happens through differentiation of concepts, it happens through developing a map and a plan for where we want to go. All of those things are putting consciousness and is drawing consciousness in and that, that consciousness will continue to, to kind of not dominate uh, the unconscious processes, but come into balance, which I think is more of the goal. Can you explain more to the uh, viewers and listeners like what you mean by unconscious and then like conscious? Sure, sure. sure. So the, the conscious mind is uh, our, our, our rational thinking. It's look at it as like our conscious is everything we're aware of. And the unconscious is quite simply everything we're not aware of. And uh, in our moment-to-moment -moment daily experience, the reality is, is that there's far more that we're not aware of. Uh, like in, in different schools, they might call it like the great mystery. You know, okay. it's, it's everything. Like we, we come to know like a tree because we have a, a name for a tree. So our conscious mind says tree. But there's all sorts of other processes. There's different types of trees. There's different uh, that the, the tree is alive. It's moving. Things are happening all around us that we're not aware of, both externally, like you were saying, and also internally. So, like our um, what's happening involuntarily in our body from moment to moment basis, you could say is unconscious. You know, our body for the most part is is an unconscious process that can become more conscious as we we move it with intention, right? By taking our, our conscious mind that's aware of what's unfolding and then combining it with, and, and putting that attention, that awareness on what's happening. So, so like one of the big examples is breath, right? Mm -hmm. So breath is happening most of the time unconsciously, automatically, and then we can toggle into the conscious breathing where we inhale, focus on that, hold maybe, exhale, hold, kind of like that okay that's, that's right and you can become mindful of anything you could become of all the senses like you could become mindful of of taste you could become mi more mindful of touch you know while you're eating for example one of the things they do in mindfulness training is they'll give you a, gr uh, a raisin and they'll have you slowly put it to your lips 
and then feel the texture of it and then what does it feel like to chew it and just hold it in your mouth and what kind of sensations does it give you and then and then all of a sudden everything it's like turning up the volume on just your experience which was there all the time but it was unconscious you know how do most people eat you know in front of watching something or talking to other people and so you can eat an entire meal unconsciously and you look at your plate and you're like, well, where'd the food go? I've had examples of like driving to a destination. I right. showed up at the destination. I was like, how did I get I here? <laughs> That's yeah. spooky. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And most of our day, if we were just talking about this earlier. Like if you look back on the prior day, there's a lot that there's going to be a lot of gaps in the memory of experience because we weren't conscious through all of it. Now, does that mean like people might think like that means we're sleepwalking? Uh, in a way, there, there's a truth to that. I mean, that's yeah, where, yeah. like, the whole zombie motif comes in, you know, where right. people are essentially walking zombies. And the reality is, is that our starting point, uh, in modern culture at least, seems to be more of a zombie drone-like state. And then it's up to us to apply consciousness to wake up, essentially. And we can do that through many different injunctions, many different practices. Right. What are some of the things that you do in your own life to... Um, become more conscious of, of your behavior and what what causes you to actually wake up in the moment yeah well you named i think probably the the biggest starting point which is the breath okay. you know becoming aware of the breath and training to put attention on the breath uh, because the breath is going to tell you what you're feeling it's going to tell you your overall state uh, you know when you're anxious the breath is more shallow it's more uh, up in the chest you know when you're more relaxed it's it's deeper uh, it's slower it's calmer it's quieter um, and so you know if you have like for example I have a tendency towards more like anxiety um, just from my prior conditioning so like uh, for me it's a process of okay noticing the state of anxiety being present not judging that state, allowing it to be there, and then following a practice like deep breathing, you know, like focusing on breathing down in my, they call it diaphragmatic, uh, diaphragmatic breathing, where you're breathing low into, your, into your, the base of your belly and expanding it like a balloon and bringing it up. And that alone can have a very, uh, you know, healing effect. Uh, another one I like uh, that Andrew Weil, um, the, uh, the physician, uh, promotes is the 478 breath where you, uh, you inhale for four, you hold for seven, and you exhale for eight. And he calls it like a, an herbal tranquilizer. Yeah. Uh, so okay. that's a good one if you're going into a meeting or you're feeling like <sighs> kind of thing. It just kind of settles you down. It also helps you go to sleep at night. It's great to do before meditation, things like that. Uh, meditation, uh, you know, is kind of an extension, the next level of yeah. breath work. Uh, and that's, again, the process of constantly just tuning your attention into the present, into what you're thinking, what you're feeling. Um, many of us, uh, like myself uh, included, uh, tend to live in, in, like I tend to live in my mind most of the time, at least I did. And so um, being able to become aware of the thought, the thinking, right? There's a time for thinking and then there's a time for being present. Right. But the thinking tends to override the, yeah. the ability to stay so present. A so present. a lot of people mistaken that, uh, especially if they start getting into meditation and some of these uh, um, uh, meditation, whether they're religious or spiritual groups or sort of uh, cutting down thinking, and, you right. know, it's like you want to go to the place of no mind and they're like right. throwing thinking out with 
the baby in the bathwater. Right, right, right. So the idea is thinking serves a, an invaluable function. It's just when it's the dominant function, when it's the only function, then it leads to neuroses, to, neuroses. to, to yeah. different problems in your behavior where you're basically being pulled out of the present. And uh, it's kind of like, it's a, I look at it as a process of bringing the head, the heart, and the gut into, into balance, right? Most of us are cut off, like the head is really operating on its own, away from what the heart is feeling and the gut is, is sensing. And so to open those back up, and everyone starts from a different place. Some people are more heart people and they don't, you know, they're not into like ru constant rumination and project projecting into the future and what have you, or catastrophizing about what might happen. You know, for them, it's just more of what their, their feeling state is in that moment. Other people are more um, just sensing, like they have kind of an intuition about something, but they can't really put their finger on it, you know. So all of these centers, um, uh, as you could call them, or some might call them different brains, they all are giving us information and that are either helping us become more present in our environment or pulling us away from that, that presence. So um, different sort of practices help to open up different ones. Yeah. Why is it beneficial to become present? What's the point of like, you know, so our minds run around, but what do you think is like the main uh, factor for becoming present that really helps people in their lives? Well, well, the way I look at it is when we're, not, when we're out of our presence, when we're out of the present moment, we're essentially missing. Again, it comes back to being in the unconscious. It's, it's when we're not present that the unconscious behavior is essentially hijacking Hijacking, us. right. Yeah. yeah. So it's a constant state of hijacking. And that's why, you know, you see people that look like adults, but they're acting like children, thinking that they're acting like adults. And I mean, this is across the board. You could see parliaments in other countries where they lock the doors and they, it's like a hockey match where they start fist fighting, fist you know, fighting. and these are people making like legislative decisions <laughs> for the people. Right. Right. And so that's, I think, one level of it. Another is in terms of your own fulfillment and enrichment. Uh, if you're mind is focused on the future, you know, there's anxiety, you focus on the past, it could be uh, grief or sadness or longing or it's, it's, there's nothing wrong with fantasy. We're always, we're in fantasy all the time, yeah. but that fantasy has to mix with the current reality so that you can create maybe something that's in that fantasy. But if we're not able to root ourselves in the present, that, that becomes just a, a a dream it doesn't it's not something that you can actualize right, right. so um, speaking of flow yeah. and um, give us some examples of like you actually um, experiencing it for like the first time the first time of flow well I, I think my early earliest experiences of flow were um, walking in the woods as a kid okay. um, when I look back I spent a lot of time um, uh, camping uh, when I was young and I would go into the woods like and I'm talking like seven eight years old with a with an axe and a Swiss Army knife you know one of those 98 function Swiss Army knives and I would just go on a little adventure myself and um, it was just walking in the trees there was no trail where I was at it was just kind of like exploration you know and I'm, I'm sure there was some fantasies going on in my own in terms yeah. of what I was trying to get to or what I was exploring for but uh, even now, just thinking about it, it's like it brings back an immediate sense of just stillness, 
a sense of a sense of like inner peace i guess more of that maybe that more of that oceanic form of of flow where it there was i felt like i merged in with the woods there was no division between myself and and the trees around me Uh, and at that point, of course, there's no language for it. You know, I can only reflect back on it now and say, oh, that's what that's what that was. Right. But I would say those are probably my, my so basically looking back on it with, you know, all your years of experience, um, you can put a language to it. But when was the first time did you recognize the feeling itself? Was it in the moment or like when you were out of it and you're like, what was that? Uh, I would say I did, I, I had see, when I had the language for it, because I, I know it happened during writing, you know, long periods of writing where sitting, sitting down, working on a project for, you know, maybe eight hours, you know, taking small breaks, but just not wanting to get up because it was just, there was, it was so immersive. I felt so absorbed in it that there was nothing else in the world that mattered. And everything was just, all my attention was focused on, on that and living in that world. Uh, I don't know if I called it flow. I wouldn't have called it flow at that point. Yeah. But uh, all I know is, is that this was the state that I wanted. And this felt, it felt more like a natural state. I felt the most myself that yeah. I had, you know. That's cool. Yeah. And um, what was uh, like your terminology for that state at the time? Like, yeah, I would say it's from sports terminology in terms of being in the zone. In the zone. Yeah, okay. I don't think I had read like flow yet yeah. at that point, but uh, I was familiar with like the idea of peak performance and okay. kind of being in that zone. And you know, I wasn't an athlete myself, so I, I didn't really have the context of hey, you can be in flow in an, in an intellectual context. Right. Um, but at the same time, yeah, that it, it seemed to have all the markers of like this is this is it. Yeah. You know? And most people think that only athletes like get in yeah. flow. That flow doesn't happen in any yeah. other like parts of life. But right. it really can happen like washing the dishes or sure. taking a shower. Or, sure. So, yeah. um, so like in that content of being um in that moment there were even movies like limitless that came out or which you know kind of talk about in a sense like taking some magic pill and you like get it and they're kind of working on that in the the future but um what are the other things that you do that like sort of you found yourself in those states well i think one thing is is again coming back to training for the present right so getting this as becoming more as more mindful of the moment as I can because even right now as we're sitting here you know we could tune in to the light breeze and the birds in the background and all of a sudden everything sort of calms and slows down kind of like that limitless state you know in terms of like the connections you might be able to make in that moment then it's a function of okay what's your what's your passion like where where do you where's your curiosity right our brains can learn anything but they learn infinitely faster on the topics that we're interested in So if you know the things that you're interested in, the passions that you want to explore, and you combine that with uh, the ability to cultivate that state, like we were discussing the other day in terms of being able to have a a trigger or the conditioning for entering that space, that seems like a a, a magic formula. There was another thing too in terms of like uh, the benefits of being present. Uh, What the humanistic psychology has determined is that 
you know, this idea of some people are mentally ill and some people are healthy was kind of a myth in itself, that there's really more of a spectrum of mental illness, that right. a true positive mental health, which we've only started studying over the last 50 years, is something that's sort of unknown uh, because it's, it's more rare than people might think. Uh, and so the more present you can become, creativity and being present are both uh, associated with very strong positive mental health. So that's another sort of, uh, I don't know if you need an intellectual reason to, to pursue flow and to pursue like being present. Like I, I think that, that to me at least was, was a big one, you know, moving away from neuroses and moving towards like your potential, actualizing your best self. Right. So what's going on with these so-called like mad creatives or mad scientists? Like, you know, yeah. what, why do they people Look turn that or, yeah. Yeah, well, because we have like a convention, which we're kind of born into. And the convention is important because it creates structure, it creates sort of some sense of, of, of order in society. Um, and anything that is outside of that convention is sort of attacked because the convention tries to maintain its, its status quo, yeah. right? So those outliers and those the mad, the, the mad people are just you can say on both sides of the spectrum, like like you know to the left to the right, are outside of that conventional space. Um, but the truth is, is that there's there's no one that can really produce original work while staying in the convention. And so, in, you do risk your your sanity in a way. You do risk becoming what what other people would call mad to become healthy. And you also uh, do. Uh, like maybe lose your status as well That's like true. yeah right. you risk losing like your job or your um you know being like accepted by your peers that's, and that's true that's true i, I like uh, what david ike said once it's like the greatest prison uh we live in is the is the concern of what other people think yeah you know and it, it is it's it's that concern uh that seeking approval and that status seeking that actually keeps the collective intact because it keeps most people trying to stay quote-unquote normal you know but once you start to read that that state of normality is is a state of depression it's a state of anxiety it's a state of unfulfillment right it's hard to stay normal and accepted even you know I don't even I could go back on that even if you try to do that people aren't going to accept you you know there's gonna be haters no matter what you do yes so if you accept that the goal is not to be liked, the goal is not to be accepted. The goal right. is to is to find your own like your own being, your own true self to to, to and to live that as fully and freely as you can. Yes. Whether or not society ever sort of finds approval of that or not becomes irrelevant. Right. So a lot of the like self-actualizers are people that have that freedom of being and that found their voice or sticking their necks out there. And regardless of, you know, whether people like them or not, they're pretty content with what they're doing. But they also, fortunately, I think in the modern world, we're not going to be executed for like sticking our necks out that way. Yeah, the heretic has a, has a little more freedom in today's world. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that was actually, you said freedom, that was one of the key words that uh, Abraham Maslow, the psychologist, um, used in, in looking at what are the qualities of self-actualizing people. It was this, this, he called it a being value, a, a value for freedom, you know, and a value for, for truth and a value for beauty that 
would extend to wherever it went for that individual and it was up for that individual to explore it. Um, and in, in history, there, the periods of heightened creativity were always uh, found in periods of high psychological safety where people had the freedom essentially to explore. So the more repressive a society, the more repressive a culture, the, the, the harder it is to open up to your own creativity inside. So like the Renaissance would be the, the, the perfect, perfect. Uh, scenario where people felt safe, they were given the freedom to express and create. Yeah. And then that period just generated so many like uh, innovations in all fields. That's right. Yeah. Okay. Because yeah. okay. it's the ability to play, you know, if you watch children, like there, there's no sense in a healthy child, there's no like fear of what might happen. That's why you need a parent around to make sure they don't do something that's gonna put them in a, in a position of danger. Because in that state that of childlike innocence, of play, and childlike innocence incidentally and playfulness are two of those qualities that Abraham Maslow found in self-actualizing people. You know, they, they know how to tap into that child and just tinker with things. You know, without any kind of fear of oh, what if this doesn't work or oh, what are people going to think, you know. No, let's just play. Let's see where it goes. And it's so cool to actually watch children and see like their imagination like going off. And um, so what do you think is driving the, uh, the child to start experiencing fear, anxiety? Um, you know, you think it's from like parenting or from whatever, like... Yeah, again, you could call it the convention, and then the convention for the child is the parent architecture and then the school architecture. Those are the two main ones where they're spending most of their time. And um, a lot of your viewers are probably familiar with uh, Ken Robert Robertson's work, uh, oh, yeah. his TED Talk. Yeah, Sir Ken. Yeah, Sir yeah. Ken. Uh, and so, you know, he, he provides some research um, from, I forget what the book was, uh, on how by the age of, like, 10 just being in the school system for a certain amount of years like every child essentially uh, in terms of divergent thinking which is the ability to like for example they give you a paper clip and what can you do with this paper clip how many ideas can you come up with uh, and like the average adult might be able to come up with 10 or 12 but a genius could come up with like 200 wow. right and so we're all capable of that at, at the start so technically every child is a creative genius in that way but just after, say, five years of being in the school, school the public system, school system, yeah. that creativity is more than cut in half. And by the age of 15, it's like it's it's less than, you know, like 10 percent is, is, is deemed creative. So the school system, but also how how we parent our kids. Um, uh, another another um, great psychologist, uh, Carol Dweck, uh, who's done a lot of uh, research on mindsets has demonstrated that there's two primary mindsets, the, the growth mindset and the fixed mindset. And the, the growth mindset knows that you can learn anything. If you put effort, your brain is plastic and it will just go. The fixed mindset thinks that you are what you are is what we were talking about earlier in terms of talent. And that's, that's what you got to work it's with. It's nature. It's just, yeah, it's just yeah, nature. You're, right? you're subjected to your genetics yeah. and that's it. Yeah, and it's very deterministic, like this is what you got. And so we don't start off with that idea. It's uh, parents instill that in their children uh, unknowingly um, by saying, and what, how do they do it? They reward the child and say, oh, you're so smart. You know, and when you say you're so smart, it, which you think is actually a compliment to the child to raise their self-esteem, what it's actually doing is saying, oh, I don't have to really work because this is because I'm so smart. Yeah. 
And so it actually undermines the effort. And so you want to reward effort more than the characteristics, the fixed characteristics of the personality. And she could, uh, Carol DeWitt can actually detect by how a parent talks to a baby whether that child is going to have wow. the, the fixed or growth wow. mindset. Amazing. Yeah. So let's go a little deeper on that, right? So this is probably going to start entering the uh, controversial realm of, of like secret societies and all this yeah. stuff. But um, why, how is this happening in the matrix that it, from the top down is trickling all the way down through our educational system? Yeah. And um, we're all affected as kids who, yeah. you know, very few of us are, have the... Um, the uh, access to these sort of growth mindsets and uh, very progressive educational system. We actually go through the system itself, which basically conditions us with fear and anxiety and to become like slaves. Slaves, yeah. Yeah, apparently I've, I've heard it said that like the reason why public school, you know, goes from K through 12 is that's how long it takes to condition uh, a young brain to essentially listen to authority and to just do as you're told, you know, it basically develop that drone or zombie consciousness and it seems to work very efficiently. Yeah. Um, Ken, you know, he talks about how the system was, was the, the whole school education system was developed uh, in the era of sort of manufacturing and so it was, it's kind of like an old school um, plant where you know it's like like just the fact that we break off kids based on their age is is completely uh, ridiculous because what right. does age have to do with learning aptitude and interests right um, so yeah from the conspiracy theory standpoint you say that well the 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 powers that be the elitists the globalists whatever you'd like to call them you know they've architected a system that's designed to dumb down the people so that they're easily controlled, they're, you know, they're easily put into more of the slave consciousness. Yeah, create workers, create workers yeah, yeah. generate more income for them, yeah, yeah. like the elite. Yeah, um, and uh, Nietzsche, you know, he, he outlined that um, over 100 years ago, that there's slave consciousness and masters, master consciousness. Yeah. And so that, sl that master consciousness is, is, is essentially the social architects that are um, essentially breaking down like what we want what they want people to know you know advertising itself was was born out of the military you know? okay. so the whole yeah. system is you know from academia our education system medicine science like it's all intertwined in you know, marketing advertising television media yes, all propaganda it's all all in a way forms of mind control as long as you're not conscious of it you yeah. know, as long as you don't wake up to it, then you can reverse the programming. Right. There's a reason why they call it television programming. Yeah, exactly. It, it always blew me away, like how uh, a country could convince the entire citizen population that they were um, being attacked and then they need to go out there and like fight these forces when they actually had an agenda to like control uh, the masses and more people. but to um, the citizens they, you know, like how the Holocaust happened, like, you know, or even in Japan, like the citizens bought into the emperor, you know, like how is that even possible, right? Like conscious is innately innocent. Cause we, again, we all have that child in us that like just wants to believe. Uh, but I think psychologically 
it's it's a function of us projecting ourself like our higher self or our, our own internal parents onto external figures uh, and so what happens and this is from like Carl Jung's work is we have like our parent our father and our mother but then there's like our internal parent you know, our internal father and mother which the king and the queen in in now chemical context uh, and so that, that those are our inner authority you know that are related to ourself the core of what we are um, and so unless we we recollect that projection to see that we are that you know and this is her, you know heretical in a different context we would, we would be assassinated for this you know kind oh, of conversation yes. but the idea is that god is within like it's 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 taking back that projection of authority and seeing that authority within yourself but because we don't have that opportunity to psychologically develop you know you don't, we're not going into any kind of advanced uh, analysis or um, our own you know deep psychological inquiry what happens in in most humans is that we project that authority onto other figures other figures of authority it could be political leaders um, it, in like in old times and still in, in certain countries it's royalty uh, okay. in our culture it's celebrity you know mm -hmm. like why do people care what what a, what are the opinions of a celebrity like why would we think that a celebrity would have any knowledge or insight or wisdom because we project into them we see yeah. them as higher we see them as as some form of something greater than us uh, and so we're not able to see eye to eye to see eye to eye you're no longer at the effect of some collective programming or some charismatic leader that has uh, a message that speaks to you it's you know you can take in information from other people but you're not going to project your higher self your own king or queen on, onto them okay, you're, yeah. Yeah. But we don't have that understanding. And so, right, so most people are just very uh, naive and projecting that it was just super benign that they just love the leader in terms of the information that was coming out, whatever it was, the quality that was out coming out of that leader, but they actually put specialness so that they put that leader up on a soapbox, a pedestal, and and then in, in that way, it kind of demeans themselves, right, as not being on the same level. You, they basically are aborting self-actualization. They basically make it so that they can never develop into their, their true self. And it's a dynamic that's created by the teacher and the student, essentially, the leader and the follower. Uh, the leader is usually under some complex that's called either the Messiah complex or the Christ complex or the God complex. And so they're trying to feed their own inflation, their own ego that's feeling bigger and better and stronger and more powerful. Uh, and then you have the student that's kind of coming more from a slave consciousness, coming more from a, uh, a, uh, a student, a child. Very often it's yeah. a wounded child looking for a parent. That parent, I was going to say that it probably starts at a childhood with the child and the parent. Yeah. If, right. If a child had healthy, integrated parents, which is kind of just an idealist, idealistic notion because it's incredibly rare, uh, then the child is going to have a healthy brain development early on, and, and uh, the parents are going to help the child recollect that projection, detach from the parent, and be a strong, self-sustaining, self-regulating you know, young person that will mature into full adulthood on their own.
but again that's in a in a world that we don't we don't live in the matrix isn't designed like that yeah it's so funny when i think about kids and like how free they are and uh, their ability to speak their mind and the truth bombs that come out of them is what makes us laugh and i love that uh, childlike quality the ability to be able to just say what you feel um and I, i really like uh I'm impressed with people that are able to do that and I'm working on that myself you know like right now I'm, I'm sweating like crazy probably like so <laughs> drenched so I'm um, actually in a sense I think vulnerability is another cool way to like connect with people yeah. is to because you're sweating too right yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah it's it's hot we're it's getting hot. pounded by the sun it's, here yeah. <laughs> so but that quality the ability to um you know express what you feel uh just naturally without like you know judgment yeah and that's i think a consequence of not anything with the mind but with the heart space you know if you keep that heart space open which how does that close like we all the child that 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 has that freedom it's because their heart space we start out with it open and then what happens in school at home you get hurt you get hurt you get hurt you get hurt and then that heart begins to develop a shield and it starts to close down. It closes off. It wants to protect itself. And as long as that heart is closed in that way, that center, that energy center, you can say, is, is, is not accessible, that it can't uh, express itself fully anymore because it becomes disconnected even from what it's feeling. Uh, for example, many of us had the experience early on where we did express ourselves. We did drop a truth bomb on our parents and we were punished yeah, for it. You know? right. And you don't have to get punished, even in, 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 a, in a severe way. It's just we don't say that. We don't talk like that. That's not how, 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 you know, how you're supposed to behave. And because we need to survive with our parents, right, we need their approval. And food and, and shelter. Food and shelter. Yeah. Right. And so it's a very vulnerable position. And so we adapt in very unhealthy ways. So there's like a built-in power structure through like this little child that has no means of generating their own income, their own like roof over their head, food and shelter. Yeah. Completely dependent on, on uh, essentially a gatekeeper. Uh, it's like a... Um, a microcosm of what we're saying happens globally with the matrix yeah. where you have these these megalomaniacs that are dictating believe that they can dis- determine what's best for everybody yeah uh, and, and again in a healthy environment a parent doesn't play that role but because most parents are m- for the most part unconscious to their own behavior because they learned from their parents exactly. too right it just yeah. passed on yeah. yeah it's like it's passing on of a virus of bad yeah. bad parenting bad behaviors uh, unconscious processes and uh and and just nothing designed to for the healthy development of the child it's all designed to because it's hard i mean children are misbehaving something like every you know three minutes or something <laughs> right. like that. so even a, a, a healthy integrated parent is still going to have their patience challenged all the time. It's, yeah. it's a tremendous, tremendous job. Yeah, it's hard. I mean, you know, being around kids and when they act up, you know, it, it's like it, it brings up a lot of, of our own inner junk, you know? Yeah, because we all have an animal in us. You yeah. know, we all have that, you know, Freud called the id or whatever you want to call it. It's that primal, you know, you could say the, the, the reptilian brain, right? So that natural impulse is there. And part of the challenge we have as adults, as parents, is that we don't even fully acknowledge 
like the, the thoughts and the impulses that are going on. We repress those. And it's in repressing those that our behavior becomes even more problematic for the child. You know, if we had healthy ways of acknowledging, oh, I want to slap my child across the head right now. I want to kick him into the wall. Like, you know, some parents would gasp like, oh, I never feel that way about my child. Yes, you do. Yes, you do. On a daily basis, you do. Yeah. Yeah. And because we, when we can acknowledge that, we can say process it out and laugh about it and make yeah, it into a exactly. joke. And, and then it doesn't come out in some other um, subverted way that's actually very destructive for the child. And so back to like neuroses and stuff, like, you know, more and more people are starting to like share like how they feel and what they're thinking in the moment. But I mean, some of the stuff that crosses my mind is super subverted. Like, like, it's just like, geez, you know, it's hard not to think that you're, um, you're a sicko in your own ways. Like, and it's happening across the board with everybody, whether they want to admit it or not. But I think what's cool about comedy is that these people are going up on stage and just saying what they're thinking right. and and everybody's laughing because they're like i think that too actually yeah. Yeah, that's, why it's funny. that's why it's funny yeah yeah because we're really in the ultimately in the end we're more alike than we are different and yes. and at the level of the heart it's like there's everything that you're feeling everybody else is feeling too and we're all become very good at being fake and phony right. and hiding how we feel and acting like, oh yeah, no, I'm fine, I'm cool, you know, like just acting like everything's okay when it's not okay. And uh, so coming to that level of expression where you can first be honest with yourself, you know, which is really the definition of integrity, okay. so that you could then communicate openly and connect with others. Um, there's a Buddhist practice, for example, called Tonglin, which is like uh, open heart exchange. Uh, where you breathe in the negativity that someone else has and then breathe out something that you think will help heal them. Like if someone's angry, you breathe in the energy of the anger and then you breathe out like something like maybe a warm hug or some right. white light or yeah, whatever. It's beautiful. But part of the understanding of that process is that whatever you're experiencing, like you breathe it in for yourself and then you breathe in for maybe for the other person and then you might breathe in like if it's anger for the other two billion people that are experiencing that emotion in this very moment. Yeah, you know? exactly. And so it connects you with humanity at a deeper level as opposed to feeling isolated and alone like that I'm the only one that's feeling this way. And then in terms of what you were just saying, in terms of the subverted thinking, yeah. that brings up the, the, the issue of the shadow, you know, right. that, that we all have uh, a darker side, so to speak, that happens in childhood because the child can't behave freely, can't express itself freely. It learns to, to repress all of those animal darker impulses that doesn't go away we just uh, like the poet robert bly says like we all carry drag uh an invisible bag behind us mm. of all of our our shit yes. you know and so it's in adulthood that we have to start unpacking that bag wow. and looking at it yes. uh, which is scary it's uncomfortable it's uh, i've found like very uncomfortable seeing like what's in there because you just, that, that part of you, if you've had the conditioning of being like a good boy, you know? Well, yeah, I was going to say is that you're rewarded for good behavior and, and like punished for bad behavior, your, your dark side or shadows. You right, know? right. Yeah, so we want to believe that we're just all good, right? And so yeah. that's what makes it hard. Like that good person programming to me is what makes it so hard to really take a full look at the shadow. It's like if you accept that we're both 
good ad bad and that those are just terms that we've created that it's there's it's an arbitrary sort of division that whatever you're thinking is okay whatever your feelings okay and whatever whatever deviousness or subverted thoughts you have everybody else has too right then it becomes okay to sort of explore those inner waters all the sort of deviant behaviors in the world so-called evil behaviors are just a function of back to what you were saying earlier about the unconscious yeah. like playing through that's right. that's right when you when you deny the unconscious when you deny the shadow right so when you keep it behind you so you don't want to see it it acts out uh, like the greeks had a term uh, it's the gods that you you ignore that destroy you you know whatever you deny in yourself is what will, will manifest wow and so like that that shadow work is sort of fundamental to me in terms of waking up um, to, to seeing the behavior to catching the behavior that is not supportive to you it's not supportive to other people but it's unconscious because you you're we're doing things and then like denying it essentially which is one of the mechanisms we have for maintaining the illusion of just pure goodness you know so the unconscious too also entails all the the flow and the limitless aspects yeah. uh, it's like this yeah. infinite pool of light and darkness yeah. almost like these macrocosm of space yeah. that's starting to be there's like i remember you had mentioned that dark matter is something that they're finding is, is real right it's everywhere and that's actually in terms of the the benefit to shadow work in the context of flow imagine carrying this big bag dragging it around behind you all the time yeah. right repressing all this stuff it takes tremendous psychic energy so as you unlock that like uh, as you come to integrate that shadow as you become to own that shadow you become more powerful and so that weight doesn't hold you anymore you become lighter yeah, you become and freer lighter flow and freer flow more yeah like your your innate potential be, can become manifest Nietzsche said uh, be careful what you cast out because in, in casting out your demons you could cast out the best thing in you you know uh, yeah, because yeah. it's not like everything in your shadow is is even quote-unquote bad it's just stuff that you ignored and denied and didn't want to see because it scared you right you know because we're scared of our own potential just as much as we are afraid of, of fa failure yeah. so another word for shadow could be like our animal selves that people repress but there's actually a lot of energy potential stored in there that if you just neglect your animal you're going to be neglecting your vitality so the part the work is to be able to integrate your reptilian animal side with your higher spirit side yeah. and bring that together into some sort of powerful creative force within yeah. you that's right uh, in like Taoist thought it's the uh, the Jing energy the sexual energy uh, like combining with the Shen energy which is the spiritual energy and so it's like a constant alchemical process of integrating the, the the body or the, the, the you say the, the feminine unconscious with the masculine spiritual consciousness mm -hmm. and it's it's like either one is is out of balance or one-sided without the other and so it's kind of like you know religion was conditioned with that morality with the higher consciousness right, right? it's like right. spiritual masculine uh, whereas um, the earlier uh, like like we were talking about the Dionysian cults of, of ancient Greece, like that was all more of the, the body. It was more, they were more nature worshipers, yeah, you know, hedonistic. paganistic and, and, yeah. and hedonistic. 
So it's when we make a dividing line between one and we make one good and the other bad, right. we're essentially divorcing, we're cutting off half of ourselves. Yeah. Right? And depend on the perspective of uh, certain like people or religions and cults, yeah. they would label hedonistic good and spiritual right. bad, right. Right? right? But traditionally that's been called like, uh, uh, from that point of view, like they're the, they're the Satanists, yeah. you know, they're doing everything that's of the body you know, not trying to like go up to spirit right. where the other way, the other extreme is like the traditional religions of transcending the body, going up to spirit right. and either in our, at least my experience, I, I could probably speak to you too, but um, those extremes are what ends up like killing us. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's cutting off any, anytime you cut off a part of you, you're killing yourself. Yes. You're killing your energy, you're killing your, your vitality and your, your creative potential. Because it's always, it's always in bringing those to balance. It's, it's integrating those opposing, that seeming opposites of, of good and evil, masculine and feminine, conscious and unconscious, you know, the wild, crazy side and the orderly side. You know? And we tend to identify with one or the other because it's uncomfortable holding the two together. It's uncomfortable, it feels awkward, it feels uncertain there's no ground well but these are conflicting ideas it creates what's called cognitive dissonance but it's in holding that tension it's holding that that um, that seeming conflict that we can work we can learn to work with it and that's where the real alchemical magic and that's where uh, magic because i remember you had that was a big distinction distinction you had like given as a gift to me was to hold the opposites yeah. and there's this tension yeah. and the tension in in our world is always about like the mystery and yeah. you know comfort comes from like knowing something yeah and the unknown is what sort of like puts people in fear and anxiety but right. to be able at least in my case was to reframe that and get excited when there's the unknown when yeah. i'm trying to figure something out and i can't get the solution and right. through like the flow cycle that we had discussed yeah. about to to walk away when my head's about to explode trying to yeah. work on the problem yeah and then out of nowhere just like magic and uh, a chemical uh, alchemy is it, it comes like an aha flow moment and right. it's amazing like when we let go when, when it happens and the flow yeah. happens and yeah so yeah holding the tension is uh it's definitely a powerful like yeah. concept to live by that's right and that's the the hero's journey itself is yeah. a consequence of 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 confronting uh attention and then finding some creative resolution for that tension and being aware of that tension and being okay holding the space of that tension and getting like not getting comfortable with the tension, but allowing it to be, allowing it to be, to know that the, the creative energy that comes at the other side of it will be something more beautiful and more magical than, than what's here right now. You know? Absolutely, and, and that's been my experience with like doing this show and yeah. traveling. Um, it's like a, a, a real life hero's journey, going yeah. out on an adventure sure. with very little money, very little resources. and. Right connecting with people like you scott and uh you know watching the magic unfold so yeah. that's why i'm doing all this right and uh, i'm so grateful to have you as a guest to be able to share with people your amazing knowledge about creativity life flow um you know aspects of how to like tune in and get better 
So thank you so much for being on Flow Real and sweating it out with me. Yeah, we're, we're holding the tension of, of sweat pouring into our eyes. That's what... <laughs> exactly. <laughs> thank so you, Tony. Thank you so much, buddy. Thank you. This has been wonderful. Awesome, man. Great. Woo. <laughs>